The Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get up to $55 in free postage when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for January 30th, 2015, the Can You Buy a President for $889 million edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. It's my birthday this weekend. Just hey. wanted to record that. Oh, I was almost going to call it my birthday edition. Are you uh, Are you doing anything special for your birthday? Hannah is taking me out somewhere and we're going to like have a nice afternoon and evening together. Nice. Mm. Could do some some adventurous thing, but I don't know what. That was John Dickerson, of course, of CBS News and Slate. Hello, John, here in Washington. Hi, David. And then in New Haven, having already recorded that she is in a bad mood, is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Hello. I'm trying to muster every shred of good humor I have this morning, which I don't have very much of. But I'm going to come through. But doesn't the anniversary of David's birth lift you into a sort of higher plane of bubbling happiness and fellow feeling? It does. It almost makes me recover from my younger son yelling at me this morning because he had two left boots. Why does he have two left boots? Because he took someone else's boot home from school yesterday. But could he admit that that was the reason? No. It doesn't seem like, I mean, I, He's a sap- my children can drive me into a rage and to a bad mood. That doesn't seem like it would drive me into an existential bad mood, that no, it, it was only, it's just the thing I'm focusing on to tell you about. That I really have no, everything's fine. He's a sabo saboteur. Um, what, um, what is that other kid going to think? The other kid's going to be like, I got the two The other right. kid must have two right boots. And so clearly the same they conversation need to exchange is going on. This, this, is like, this is like the beginning of an incredibly tedious children's book, you know? Like, <laughs> isn't it an O. Henry story? <laughs> yeah, it's like an O. Henry right, story exactly. he never wrote. It's like, I, right. Yes. Yeah. O. Henry was the Magi <laughs> shoemaker. Okay. Today, on today's show, we will talk about the Koch brothers and the enormous amount of money they're going to pour into the 2016 election. Then we will talk about the Supreme Court, considering whether the death penalty needs to be humane. And our third topic will be the the essay by New York Magazine's Jonathan Chait about whether a kind of PC um, dissent-suppressing machine has taken over the American left. We'll have cocktail chatter, and then in Slate Plus, we'll talk about the last blogging of Andrew Sullivan, who stepped down as a blogger yesterday or on Wednesday, and and we'll talk about Andrew's impact on the world as a blogger. As we all know, it's very hard for the wealthiest Americans to have their voices heard in politics, <laughs> in this socialist dictatorship we live in. What with the, I worry about this a lot. Yeah, like the fact that, that estate taxes aren't quite at zero for everybody. Capital gains taxes have not quite come down to zero. The finance industry has not been completely protected. Um, but thank goodness the Koch brothers are here to give voice to the voiceless. The conservative brothers, Charles and David Koch, two of the richest people in America and two of the most prominent conservatives in America, have announced this week at a at a gathering in Palm Springs, a gathering we will talk about in one second, that they and their rich allies plan to spend $889 million to help the Republican cause in 2016. That is more than the GOP itself spent in 2014. 
it's John. It's an insane amount of money. Although then when you look at it, it's only twice as much as they spent. They they spent four hundred plus million dollars in twenty twelve. So right. so it's not like a logarithmic difference. It's just like a lot more. Yeah. <laughs> Right. And also, I think what's important uh, and one's I mean, this is not I'm going small here on the first thought, but um, is that is that one of the things that the Koch operation has done that's different than other big money. Normally, the threat from big money is mitigated by the by the fact that big money from individual donors is often righteously, stupidly spent. It's just, it's like they, cause they have all kinds of notions about how politics work and, and they don't really, it doesn't pay off and, and campaigns are constantly kind of beset by their rich donors causing havoc. The Koch brothers have been much more systematic. And in the last midterm election, uh, they, uh, Emily, are you, uh, uh, unwrapping a small rabbit that you've brought to class today yes, or something? Essentially. There's a, that's what I'm doing. A small a, rabbit. That's a, a good way of there's a rustling sound characterizing my lip gloss. Oh, anyway, they've gotten smart about targeting, about getting the message to their specific people about really being, you know, on the cutting edge of technological operations, which means that not only are they going to rival the parties now in terms of the money they raise, but in terms of the science of turning out voters and and manipulating uh, the electorate. And that's the part of it where, I mean, this won't just be dumb money. This will be well So actually, just dig into that a little bit more, John. So what is it that they will spend that money on? What is it the places where the money is going to go? Well, it will go to, you know, it will go to mapping and understanding the voters in every neighborhood in all the um, swing states. It will go to the so and I'm thinking this is just in terms of 2016. So because the Koch brothers are also involved in lots of state level stuff, it's one of the reasons why the state houses um, have turned so Republican over the last few years. They are working at all levels of government, but this is specifically in terms of this commitment to the 2016 race. So they will go on the ground, target the voters, keep them constantly marinated in alarm about whatever issue it is that keeps them most hopped up. So smart targeting these days reaches out to you as a voter and says, what two issues do you really care about? And you say like, you know, abortion and um, speeding tickets. And then you get emails like frequently freaking you out about those two subjects and just keeping you constantly on the boil so that you go and and vote. And so that will be happening at a really precise level. One other thing that they're going to do is maybe play in the primaries on the Republican side, which would be very interesting because then they would be basically picking winners and losers within the party. And there's a potential for that to massively backfire. So Emily, it is true that the of, among the very rich Americans, there are a lot of Republicans, but by no means are all very rich Americans Republicans. There, there's tons and tons of, of billionaire types who are also liberal and progressive. Maybe not. Maybe not. I, I don't know that there's an accurate measure, but there are plenty you can think of them. Why? Tom Steyer, George Soros, to, yeah, up to name. You know, and a lot of all, almost all the tech the tech people are libertarian in some fashion, but they're also they tend to be kind of liberal and social leanings and by general inclination and on the environmental issues and things like that. Why do we not see a liberal counterpart to this? Is it there's one theory which is that for the Republicans there's their return on investment, which is that when you buy into politics, you can actually get things done which hugely will benefit your industry and therefore it's a therefore it's a reasonable investment. And for Democrats, because of the kinds of issues they're interested in and there there's less of that. Do you think that's the explanation or something else? 
I think that's pretty tempting. I mean, we know that a huge influx of money into politics only shifts a tiny percentage of the voters on issues they know a lot about and care about deeply, right? So when – we've talked about this before. When you're talking about, you know, gun regulation or abortion, what's another good, like, hot-button social issue example? Climate change. Ma- or or climate table. change. You you can't change everyone's minds about an issue in which there's already a ton of information and saturation going on. But what you can do with your money is elect politicians who will be much more sympathetic to your lobbyists writing in lots of fine print language into bills that no one's ever going to notice or be able to explain because it's so complicated. And so it seems to me that Republicans have generally a bigger incentive, to, given their business interest, to want that kind they, of legislation. In, energy, like energy in particular being a key one, which the Cokes are obviously in. Yeah, and Wall Street regulation too. And also, if your goal is to just keep government from printing new regulations, that's an easier if you if you move a bunch of people into the seats of power, then they just don't have to do anything. Whereas if you believe uh, in the immediate threat of uh, human contributions to global warming, you have to get stuff passed. You have to get enough people to get stuff passed. You have to like build a public argument. You got to do a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of work. Whereas the other way, right. you're just not doing right. it. Right, right. So here's a question I have about this announcement from the Koch brothers. Is this – Inevitable. In other words, I mean, David, for years you've been making the argument that politics is underfinanced, that more people should invest a ton of money because you can essentially buy a lot of the kind of influence we're talking about right now. Citizens United didn't directly lead to this result. That's an oversimplification because all it did was open campaign spending to corporations and unions. But based on Citizens United, then we had a D.C. Circuit opinion that basically created the opportunity for super PACs. And then that, I would argue, made it much more socially acceptable to give a ton of money and open the door to this quote, advocacy spending that's supposed to be independent, where there's no disclosure. That's like the world that the Koch brothers rushed into originally, right? Where you're influencing elections, you're supposedly not directly coordinating with the candidate, but actually you're very much in line with those views. I am not sure how we turn the clock back now. I mean, Congress could pass disclosure rules, <laughs> and that would open – at least we'd be able to see much more transparently who's contributing how much to the Koch brothers' initiatives and others like it. But I sort of feel like without some fundamental shift in how we think about the First Amendment and who gets to give money and how much to campaigns, that this is like the new world that we live in. Uh, yeah, and John, actually, I want to I dig into you – I don't want to dig into you. I want to spoke at you. No. So is there, you know, if you look back at the campaign finance law, the McCain-Feingold law, that was sponsored by John McCain, a Republican. And I think it got more than one Republican vote. But it seems to me we're moving into a world where, for self-interested reasons, Republicans have absolutely no incentive or desire to change the campaign finance laws or do anything to constrain it. Is there any, con- I guess the question is, that I want to frame is, is there any sense on the right that the volume of the scale of money, the private money that is flowing into politics is in any way a problem, even though they recognize that it's hugely beneficial to them as electoral strategy, but that it is problematic for the democracy? Well, yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things to chart here is that you have the Koch brothers who finance uh, organizations who talk a lot about crony capitalism. And so they talk about the 
excessive power of K Street, the excessive power of money spent on lobbyists to influence legislation. So we're going to have a fight uh, over the XM Bank, and it'll be interesting to see if it's a real fight or a fake fight. And you have paid a lot of attention to this, David. There's a very good chance the XM Bank fight, as sponsored by the Koch brothers, will fail. In other words, all their money and all their power won't work in the actual uh, – and that the XM Bank will get reauthorized. And so as a legislative matter, it won't matter. So you could argue all this money, all this like work they're doing is powerless against – reason, good policy. And yet, on the other hand, on the electoral front, it's going to play a huge role. And coming back to this, I mean, you have the establishment where there is a worry about the So where grassroots Republicans worry about the establishment, their ties to lobbyists and corporations and the ability to kind of tweak the economic system. But then you have this populist. This is what's so interesting. I mean, you have this populist. The Koch brothers are a more populist message about small government, but yet obviously they benefit uh, from being able to influence public regulation. So these are two different views, and they could be in tension, but it's also a little rich for the Coke side to complain about the influence of money in politics since... But, but I, you didn't really answer my question. Is there anyone on the right who is now complaining about the influence of money in politics or worried well, yeah, about that? Well, yeah, they're complaining about the influence of money in politics as it, as it relates to uh, lobbyists and the ability to influence legislation, which they can do because they give money to campaigns. So, But wait a second. I mean, when Democrats in Congress have proposed better trans- disclosure rules, which are just a one first step, the Republicans have been united in opposition to them. Yeah, they have a different remedy. You know, they want to call out the lobbyists for for the bad legislation that it, that they support. They don't want to change the money system for the way it works because right. they, right. they believe it's limiting free speech. Everybody's ideologically on the same page about limiting money in campaigns or roughly on the same page. Right. I mean, it's kind of the perfect storm. You have the First Amendment, which you're standing with as your shield, which, you know, free speech, basic American value. This interpretation of the First Amendment, meaning unlimited spending, money sloshing around, we don't know where a lot of it comes from, elects people who are completely disinclined to change the rules. It's really hard for me to see how we upend that dynamic without some like apocalyptic moment in American politics, like a Watergate, something that is so clearly corrupt that the voters revolt, which they completely have not done so far. Or people start pressing the politicians on their relationships and get them to explain themselves and get them to stand up. I mean, there should be nothing wrong with uh, a Republican candidate who's supported by the Koch brothers getting up and saying why it's so wonderful that they support them. I mean, they they should be able to articulate that and have it live in the light of day. And that's what they're going to have to do. And they might have some trouble with that. And voters might think, gee, like somebody's somebody owns you if they're paying that much money. And that might end up being not a totally wonderful thing. For candidates, I mean, I wonder, it would be fun to get an economist to try to tally all of the benefits that accrue to liberals and Democrats by having the Koch brothers as a boogeyman. Uh, not very much. Well, there's some there's some evidence that it helps raise money, A. And B, the notion of a politician in the pocket of wealthy interests is a storyline in American history that exists. Well, and if you can attach a politician yeah. to that storyline, then it, it well, is something you, they have to You know, to fight what's against. interesting is that, that, that I was just thinking about this, John, is that w- so when when is this most acute in American politics? And I think the answer is it's most acute in the Gilded Age when you had the similar kind of inequality and you had extremely rich people who were 
basically financing individual politicians. It wasn't William McKinley. Right. William yeah. McKinley. Was a, but, but then you, what you got was a, a revolt that was led by someone from within that movement. So Teddy Roosevelt, who was McKinley's vice president, becomes the scepter, becomes the sword of progressivism and leads to all this kind of revolt against the dominance of the, of the, the plutocrats. But I don't see anything no. like that emerging on the right right now. Or, or I mean, the McCain, left. Or the left. I mean, yes, you, okay, you can uh, – Elizabeth Warren, but – She's not a, like, viable... Well, it doesn't really matter if it emerges on the left. I mean, there is a bit on the left. Well, it has to... But, I mean, I guess my the argument is if it's, not, it. if it's not even showing up really on the left, then it sure ain't going to show up on the right. So that's, that, that was my only... Uh, did, did you guys have this... Uh, one of the things that struck me, actually, about this gathering... So this gathering was in, you know, some super schmank, schmanky uh, California resort of some sort. And it's 300 or 400 incredibly rich people who gather and then summon American politicians to come pay obeisance to them. And then they decide they're going to spend a billion dollars. But it was so Atlas Shrugged. It had this air. You remember the, the scene of at the final finale of Atlas Shrugged where John Galt gathers all the rich tycoons of America and takes them out of society and says, you know, we will take our, make our stand and you try to run this country without us. It felt, this is what it, this, I mean, the, the, the Kochs who are libertarians at their core and I think probably, you know, go to bed reading, reading Ayn Rand. This felt to me like a scene out of Atlas Shrugged. That, that we're now we're going to have the we're all going to gather. The rich and powerful are going to gather, and you just try to stop us. And what's amazing is the intersection between that plutocracy and the Tea Party, which has such a strong populist bent to it. It just, in some ways, is an utter contradiction, and yet they're also married to each other, and they see some common interest, right? Well, if the message of the Tea Party and the Cook Brothers is basically "Get government out of my life." Then they're in sync. It's the it's the areas in which the Coke brother or Coke Industries benefits directly from the removal of government that is a little more special pleading. But in general, it's not that much of a contradiction. Well, well except that the populist, you know, when you dig into this as a sort of deep rational analysis, the populist grassroots level people who want government out of their lives actually don't really they don't want social security gone they don't want medicare gone they just kind of don't want other people to get some of the benefits they're getting and so i think the Koch brothers have i mean i think there's been a really well played conflation on the right of the interests of the hyper rich somehow being synchronous with the interests of poor working class basically white voters white people um, men you know like this figure about obamacare that who's going to lose the obamacare subsidies it's going to be white southerners White Southerners will lose the subsidies if Obamacare is rolled back. And that's like weird. That's a weird thing that's happening. I don't know. John, skeptical. No, 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 no. So final question on this. So it's clear like that the Koch brothers' money has had a huge influence, as John, you say, in state-level politics and in sort of framing the issue and in the kind of convening power and forcing presidential candidates to come and and talk to them and, and seek their money. Do you guys think that the Koch brothers' money actually can win a presidential election as opposed to all these sort of smaller elections? It's going to be such an interesting test. If they get involved in the primaries and they get behind the best candidate and and really make a difference so that the most electable candidate, whoever that may be, I'm not sure, maybe Chris Christie, I don't know, Scott Walker, if they push that person forward and then that person wins, then I feel like we'll be able to say, yes, it made a real difference. If not, then it seems like it will be a wash in the presidency. I think Emily's exactly right. I think their power, their maximum power is in the Republican primary system where they can pick a candidate who really believes what they say. And 
that would have a, a, a real effect. The question then is whether that candidate can survive in a general election, whether ideological consistency with their viewpoint is both something that can be sold at the national level in the 12 battleground states that will determine things and or whether a person who sounds good in a room of 300 people who all agree has the capacity, talents, and otherwise to speak publicly. And then also one final thing, whether a person who has extraordinary talent speaking publicly, who's really good at that, because they are anointed by this group, gets so warped and distorted by trying to ride two horses. One, the public speaking horse that you need to ride to actually get, uh, speak to a room full of people. But then also the little voice in your head that says everything you say has to fit whatever the people who are paying a billion dollars for your campaign want you to say. And that's a that's tough to do to keep all that in your head. You know what I think I would do if I were them, if I was advising them? Here's Here's my two cents. I would get behind Scott Walker. At the moment, he's like pretty much not nowhere, but I'm sure he has really low name recognition. They could pull him out of the pack, get behind him. And then I would say they shouldn't give him a single directive. They should tell him to go do, say, whatever he needs to do to win the election. They're going to stay out of his hair. They would get what a lot of what they want from a Scott Walker presidency. Yeah. That's that's a great point. So ch- change your ROI calculation. Like, what is the return you need? You all you need is the body in the seat, right? Yeah. Not the body in the seat who believes everything that you believe, because exactly. the body Come in the seat is better than that. Yeah. Collectivism Crashing is your chin afterward. Collectivism is on the march, and all we need to do is stay the thundering boots of collectivism that march behind Hillary Clinton. So if that's your goal, then you know it's actually not that hard. I've been predicting a Scott Walker presidency for years. I would just like to point that out. Um, so that is $889 million and two cents that the Koch brothers now have to spend. <laughs> Excellent. From us Emily, to the I'm, I don't think you need, I don't think the New York Times will allow you to be a public donor to the Koch brothers. I think that is, you might lose your job to giving them those two cents. Oh, no. Just by giving them that did you give? Piece did you give two to, to Charles and none to David or one to each of them? <laughs> uh, one cent to each of them, I guess. I don't really know who does what, so... Yeah. The GapFest this week is sponsored by Stamps.com. Trips to the post office are never convenient. So why not get your postage right from your desk with Stamps.com? Stamps.com even gives you special postage discounts you can't get at the post office, including on first-class priority mail, Express International, and more. So you'll never pay full price for postage again. Here's how Stamps.com works. Using your own computer and printer, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Then you just hand it to the mail carrier or drop it in a mailbox. It's that easy. So it's no wonder that over half a million small businesses are already using Stamps.com. Right now, you can use our promo code GABFEST to get the special offer you've heard about before. $110 bonus offer, no risk trial, a free scale, digital scale, and up to $55 in free postage. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. The Supreme Court will hear a case about how humane the death penalty needs to be in April. The court will hear the case brought by four, originally Oklahoma death row prisoners, now three because one has since been executed, about the method of execution that Oklahoma has chosen to use involving a drug whose name Emily is now going to pronounce for us. Midazolam. It might be mitazolam, but let's go with mitazolam. The first word you, you just said sounded like some kind of salutation. Mitazolam. <laughs> <laughs> yes, shazbat and mitazolam. Uh, 
Uh, it's good that we can get laughs out of lethal drug cocktails. That's true. Uh, the case springs from a botched execution in Oklahoma last year involving a murderer named Clayton Lockett who was Ugh. who was undergoing the, the supposedly humane capital punishment of lethal injection using an untested protocol. The medical staff handled it very poorly. The drugs apparently didn't work as they thought they would. The protocol had never been tested, and Lockett died an agonizing and prolonged death. Oklahoma has been pushing to be able to allow itself to execute people as it wants. These prisoners say, you need to find a humane way to kill us. And the Supreme Court has taken the case and has now, Emily, it has now, as of uh, the middle of this week, it has now actually stayed the executions of the three prisoners who are still alive. The Attorney General of Oklahoma asked the court to stay these remaining executions in some modicum of uh, good taste, I suppose, or I don't know, mercy seems like the wrong word, but yes, those three people. So what are the basic legal legal issues here? And do they have larger significance than the, the small, relatively small matter of the three prisoners? Well, I mean... The courts have been struggling with lethal injection for years now. And in 2008, the Supreme Court heard a lethal injection case with a different cocktail of drugs, a cocktail of drugs in which it was clear that the barbiturates were, according to, you know, medical research, were really preventing pain. They put you into basically such a deep state of unconsciousness that you weren't going to feel the effects of the drugs that are going to kill you. And at that point, the Supreme Court said, okay, this kind of lethal injection is legal. States, you can go ahead. Since then, what's happened is that the main manufacturer of the necessary barbiturates moved to Europe. And the Europeans don't want to be providing dr- – they don't like the death penalty. There were, was pressure on this company to stop selling the drugs to the American states that were using it for execution. So now you can't get the drugs anymore. So the states scrambled around and tried to come up with alternatives. And the supposed painkiller, metazolam, that Oklahoma and other states have used, it's – really, really sketchy that this actually stops pain. In some cases, when you administer correctly, it seems to give the appearance of paralysis so that basically we can't see that people are suffering internally. But when it's been misadministered, prisoners have said, I can feel my whole body burning. And actually, that happened in this most recent execution in Oklahoma. And so I mean, to me, this is like the most ghoulish, grotesque aspect of the death penalty, because the opponents of the death penalty that have essentially succeeded in blocking the state supply of the barbiturates have made the procedure more painful for people in the name of trying to get the courts and I think the public so horrified with the spectacle of executions that will decide to stop them. So it's like this weird, awful I mean, game is the wrong word, but I guess drama that's playing out where the states that are trying trying to execute people would prefer to do it with this older method that blocked pain and was more humane. What they're not willing to do in these particular states is to stop executions entirely. And so we're having a fight over the method of execution that's causing a lot of pain to individual inmates in the meantime, when really this is like a proxy fight for whether we should have the death penalty at all. What I don't understand is that there are so many 
methods of killing people, which are clearly more humane than the ones we, the one that we've chosen is this one that that has the theatrics of uh, humanity without exactly. the actuality That's, of humanity. It's the optics. But the but you know the guillotine is clearly like a more humane way of killing people. Like clearly, like it's a really simple. If you want to kill people, that's a really simple way to do it. Yeah, the firing line also the firing worked squad. as did the gas or, or mass. Well, the firing squad didn't work as well as the guillotine. The guillotine, as you say, can't do better than that. And but the, so what or, is it? Or, or inv- like massive. You know, if you want to give people like a, give them a massive overdose of of an opiate. Like give them fentanyl. Give them a gigantic amount of fentanyl. That will kill anybody, and it will kill them very. You know, it will be not be an unpleasant death. Apparently, so say people who take a lot of fentanyl. Why doesn't Oklahoma just say here's a guillotine? Oklahoma could go back to the guillotine. Oklahoma and other states that execute don't want to go back to a method that is seen as barbaric because that is horrifying to their sensibilities. And that's why we're sort of in the pickle that we're in. I mean, what I can't tell is whether this is going to eventually help end the death penalty because it really will diminish public support for it. I mean, these stories of the box executions are really horrifying. That's one possibility. The other one, though, is that this is like a blip and the states will come up with some better cocktail of drugs and continue to do lethal injections and we'll just like move on as a society or you know nitrogen gas is apparently a painless way to die so we could use that in the gas chamber in a way that hasn't been done in the past so is this really a fight over method in which case like eventually the states will sort it out to keep going or is it about focusing our attention on cruel and inhumane punishment in a way that in the end makes us collectively avow executions entirely. Method. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I just, it has always struck me as this, to me, you know, the reason, there are many reasons to oppose the death penalty. The fact that it's applied in this racially discriminatory way, that it's possible that at least a small percentage of the time, innocent people are executed. All of those reasons are much more compelling to me. But that is not what this case is about. In the states that are getting rid of the death penalty, I don't know whether, which one of you is more likely to know the answer to this. Probably Emily. Yeah. Has the the inhumanity of it been an issue or is it really these other things? Is it really the mistake mis- – we've made mistakes in who we've executed? Is that what's pushing it? Yeah. It's really that. I mean the states where there are moratoriums on the death penalty are in – the parts of the country outside the South. So we essentially have a situation in which in the states that are actually continuing in large numbers to sentence people to death and actually executing people, it's become regional. And there are only now like nine or 10 states that have actually had an execution in the last, I think it's since the beginning of 2013. So we're down to a small number of states in which this is seen as a necessary punishment. And I really don't think that the fact that they're scrambling to come up with drugs that they can, in good conscience, say don't cause pain is going to end the debate for them. Emily, so compare this to the same-sex marriage case, the marriage equality, where one of the issues is, is this has this become a national – has this perceived as sort of something where, where there's now a sentiment in the nation that says – Marriage equality is ought to be the law of the land. Therefore, the Constitution, we kind of need to find the constitutional justification because clearly the public sentiment has moved. Is that the theory of the case for death penalty opponents is that once you get 40 states which won't execute people, then the Supreme Court kind of has to say this is, clearly has been determined to be inhumane by the majority of the country. Therefore, we need to discover that it's inhumane constitutionally. I think no for two reasons. First is that while – 
polls show declining support for the death penalty, it's still above 50 percent in the country. And, you know, there are arguments for the death penalty. There are cases in which, like, truly horrible, bloodthirsty, sickening crimes are committed. And a lot of people in the world think that an eye for an eye, a death for a death is the right way to go, is justice. And also, you know, this notion that we should care about whether people suffer a lot of pain when they're executed. I mean, legally speaking, given the Eighth Amendment prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment, it matters a lot. But I think to a lot of supporters of the death penalty, I don't think they're losing sleep over the fact that some of these men are physically in pain when they're dying. The second reason I don't think this is like gay marriage is that the Supreme Court essentially tried to make the death penalty illegal Um what now it's like 35, 30, however many years ago, and it didn't work. They didn't go so far as to say that states could never have a constitutionally acceptable provision for the death penalty, but they tried to essentially really narrow the window for that. And at that moment, the death penalty could have petered out. Instead, there was a huge backlash against that Supreme Court decision. Support for the death penalty rose among Americans. Most states passed laws that the the Supreme Court then decreed past constitutional muster. So the notion that the court, that the, this court with its five conservatives is going to take another crack at that extremely polarizing issue, I it just seems like way out of reach to me right now. Last question on this, John. Is the death penalty in any way a live political issue anywhere? Not in a, not at the national level. No, not even at the, no. Emily, where do you, do you have a, do you have a, uh, where did you lay your bet on this case? I think that, well, I don't know. I mean, this is the weirdest case, right? Because there were four prisoners who petitioned. One of them was about to be executed. The court refused to take the case and stay the executions over the dissent of the four liberal justices. One of those petitioners was executed. And then the court took the case. It only takes four votes to take a case. So it may be that it's the liberal justices on the court just deciding maybe they can sway Justice Kennedy or one more conservative to at least say that this drug metazolam is not an acceptable way to go and carve out some kind of small you know, temporary victory for um, humane executions. But I just don't see it going anywhere past that. Yeah, that's like that's sort of the best case scenario. I mean, the worst case scenario is that essentially the conservatives on the court tell the states to do whatever they want. I want to tell you about a new podcast Slate is doing just to just to whet your whistle. Uh, We're doing something fun for the new season of FX's spy drama, The Americans, which, as I'm sure you know, follows a family of Soviet sleeper agents living in Washington, D.C. in the 1980s. The Dickersons, as we call them (laughs) in our house. We're producing an episode-by-episode companion podcast with the cast and crew. It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the show gets made, from the writer's room to the sound stages to the great 80s details and spy gear. For this week's premiere episode, the podcast talks to showrunners Joel Fields and Joe Weisberg. Joe Weisberg happens to be the brother of Slate Group Chairman Jacob Weisberg, about all the care that goes into meshing a fictional story with real historical events. You'll find the Americans Insider podcast in the Slate Daily Feed or at iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. I am rushing to finish season two so that I can watch season three. Did you say rushing? Like to be like yeah. rushing? Like joke? Yeah. Like a rushing? <laughs> Is that why you did that? Or no? That was just coincidence. No. I never make puns on purpose. Only oh. bad puns by accident. Okay. John Chait, Jonathan Chait, the superb New York Magazine columnist, 
friend, he's a friend of mine, I should say, has written an article, not a very PC thing to say. It has ignited the internet. Chait argues that a form of leftist thought policing is suppressing discussion, dissenting opinions, performances, art, basically in the name of protecting victims, protecting people who whose voices have not been heard before. Chait is particularly irked by, I think, the microaggression movement, which focuses on the small buildup of insults and unconscious slights that weigh down women, people in the LGBTQ community, people of color. Chait is a white guy, we should note. But he says that this is suppressing freedom and debate in the name of protecting feelings, and it harkens back to the early 1990s and the rise of PC on campus. It made me, actually, Chait's article made me go back to an excavating dreadful story I wrote for the Harvard Crimson on February 5th, 1990, 25 years ago this week, which was called Politically Correct Thought Control about the PC takeover of Harvard. It was an, it's an awful, I remember being writing that article with such pride. Yeah. So, what, so, is it awful? It's just terribly written. It's so <laughs> indignant and like without, and like over the top and hyperbolic and without any kind of, it uses, a, it uses an inclusive we that is maddening. Knowledge. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so collegiate. But anyway. I, this, it seems to me, just to, to make a brief detour, is one of the great talents of a good teacher, which is basically to endure the crap that your students write when they think they're writing well uh, and nevertheless be nice to them. I went back and read something from that period of my own, and I, I, I wanted to just hit myself in retribution for having ever put those words in that particular order. Um, you were so, full of conviction, if nothing else. So <laughs> Weren't we all? Emily, does, did Chait's article ring true to you? Do you think that people are are afraid to speak up in the world because they're worried they're going to be excoriated as, as racist or sexist or anti-feminist or not? Or do you think that we, basically we just have like more speech and the, the social media has produced like a wave of alternative speech from people who hadn't been heard from as much before? I think there is a lot of taking offense and thin-skinnedness going on that this whole – I mean the the terms we have for it, the trigger warnings, the tone policing, all of the um, abbreviations I can never remember for various identity groups and the way in which – People who are further to the left maybe are attacking people who are like more liberal but in the center for being insufficiently sensitive. I think all of that's totally real. And this term microaggression, I've been hearing a lot in the last year, always from people who are a generation younger than me. And I always have to like shake myself and remember what they're talking about. I am not sure if the answer is to condemn all of this because I do think you get into this weird hypocrisy of saying that – some people in policing other people's speech are going too far and therefore you're going to tell them to shut up. On the other hand, I really think it's a mistake for the world to devolve into, or I guess I shouldn't say the world because this isn't the world. It's a mistake for like what passes for liberalism in college to devolve into an infighting in which nobody is expected to just like have a thick skin once in a while, move on, like go on with their lives and not be completely derailed by someone else's insensitive comment. That just seems like a big mistake to me. I'm not sure what the antidote for it is, though. And that also argumentation in that environment and the larger environment, he chooses only to talk about liberalism, but there, this is, there's a bigger conversation that happens in which you're not allowed to have certain views or, and in fact, Chait himself is not allowed to have 
some of the views he has when he expresses them. And, and the only way you're going to figure stuff out is if some group of people take risks in an argument to say things without uh, censoring themselves because, you know, nine of them may be clunkers, but the one may be a great bit of insight. But if, you, if you're having to lock yourself down on every front for fear of giving. Who's locking themselves? So this is where I don't get it. Like, well, where, people, where, does, where do people think they're getting locked down? I mean, Hannah. Well, my Hannah's wife, quoted H- in the piece Hannah's saying quoted that. In the piece, and I kind of, so my wife, Hannah Rosen, is quoted in the piece, and she wrote a book called The End of Men, and she's just, you know, taken shit from feminists ever since. And, you know, she's mocked on Twitter about it. And I, but I kind of don't. Do you guys read the trollish things people say about you? I kind of don't. Well, I don't really pay. I'm sure that people are saying terrible things about me all the time. And yeah. I just, no, they like, are. I we, can, we can testify. And that. I don't – I just don't like, – uh, Well, no, I think – Well, you have a thicker skin. I think the problem is when you're a person who wants your ideas to go out in the world and have currency, you have a weakness, which is that you think that by the strength of your ideas, you can bring people along and convince them. Otherwise, you're just like talking in an empty room. And so you have this sense that like if you write – if you spend all this time alone thinking about this stuff, and really being considered that when you present the meal out for the table that people would say yum this is good as opposed to like taking it and throwing it against the wall and saying horrible things about you so there's that weakness is for basically any writer but now also I think what Chade is talking about and what's true of course in the broader context too is that nobody gives anybody the benefit of the doubt anymore about anything and so now like the food doesn't even hit the table before it's like immediately ejected. And that represents – so you can be sensitive as a writer, but now we're in a kind of a new place where nobody pauses to give the benefit of the doubt. There's always mode of questioning. There's always, well, where is this person from and therefore that totally shapes their argument, not whether the argument stands on its own two feet by itself. I mean they're too – Right. And the other thing is the mode of attack – that Chait and I think Hannah are struggling with isn't your idea is wrong and here's why. It's you, you are yes. a bad feminist and here is why. And we are going to make vicious fun of you for a long time on social media in a way that is supposed to humiliate you. Well, so, you know, for, sorry, go ahead. No, no, you finish, you finish. Oh, I was just going to say for me, this came up a lot when I was writing about, when I was questioning the link between bullying and suicide, just to save myself or I'm sure it won't work. But to be clear, it's not that there is no link at all. It's just that it's more complicated than, in many cases, bullying leads to suicide. For questioning that, a few years ago, I mean, I got untold amounts of internet shit. And the whole idea was that I was blaming victims, that I'm a victim blamer. I still get those emails. I still get um, tweets about that. And I agree with you, David. I mean, I feel like I have to keep trying to say what I wanted to say and feeling like it's grounded in the talking to suicide prevention experts and the social science that I got familiar with when I was working on that. And I have to like stick with my um, my program. But I do see why you could start to feel right. a little bit like, do I really need to pick controversial right, right, ground right, to stand right. on the next no, time? Of course, of course. I mean, I, they're two different. They're also, they're two different forms of attack that take place. So one is just just trollish awfulness where people just are horrible, you know, say they <laughs> whatever, they want to rape you, they want to kill you. They just like the the terrible things particularly that women get online where it's where it's not really content based. It's just it's just like vitriol and stupid vitriol and that. And that, it's in it the speech way, it's violent. It's, it's it, yeah. I mean not that like yeah. you're actually getting killed, but people are talking about raping, killing, and dismembering you, which is very unpleasant. Yeah, but see, to me, that stuff, I mean, I'm not a woman, and so maybe this is not, this doesn't register with me. That just seems like 
who you know what who cares like that's just bull it doesn't matter and then the other part is impugning you and like making you feel embarrassed about the beliefs that you hold that you are yourself that you should be you should be ashamed like that you've said something racist you've said something sexist you've said something dreadfully offensive and you have to and you sort of like then are internally you know examining your motives and that that's a different I think that's more what Chade is talking about. Is not, Chade's not really talking about the, the trollish trollishness, but really more the, the what you said, John, questioning motive. But again, it's like, and like, don't you guys think? I mean, the, the reaction to this has been so strong, and we're you know here we are like three like the three most privileged people, you know, in the zip code right now, probably, or you're in a different zip code, Emily. But I could be the most privileged person in my zip code if you want, but define privilege for me. Well, but it's so like when you see. Lots of people of color, none of whom are on our show right now, or people who have a different forms of minority status who are speaking up and saying, this is, you know, this is irritating to hear from Chait. It's like, what, isn't it just that people who have not been heard from are finally getting a chance to speak up, have their piece on Twitter or wherever it is? And, and now Chait wants to, you know, wants to say that this is PC thought policing. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think there's a lot to that critique. And I also think there's a democratizing effect of social media, which in the end is good. Like, lots and lots of people can talk back at us, at Chait, at whatever other, you know, paid pundit they don't like. And and it's, uh, you know, nobody likes to be the subject of that kind of attack. But so what? Like, that's a, that all of that is good in the end, right? Well, it's good in the end. But having access to the debate doesn't mean that all the rules are gone for a debate that's actually going to get you somewhere. So mm-hmm. um, fine for everyone to ha- have a, a place and a role, more not just fine, necessary. But then that doesn't mean just because somebody's being let in, they get to basically question your motives or totally, you know, as Chris Sullentrop, the great, his great expression that on the internet, everybody gets to egg the same house. There's a disproportionality, which doesn't do anything to in, to increase learning. And it probably, except for in Chait's case, he keeps enough of an open mind about some things that he probably is reevaluating things. But most people just go to their corner. That, so it's not getting, if you just look at the aggregate benefit of good argumentation, all the extra voices have a responsibility to kind of play by the rules, which which means giving the benefit of the doubt to somebody, not closing that down immediately. Yeah, I think that's right. But don't those of us who feel under assault also have a responsibility to toughen up yeah, a little bit? absolutely. Yeah, to basically let it fly and not take the bait in the times where you need to take the bait or, I mean, when people are baiting you. And then also to say like, huh. Instead of immediately dismissing this as a person from the thought police, you know, d- did I miss something here? Right. Or is my – was I just being right. s- sloppy in the old way? I think you're exactly right. What, what, right. So one thing that I – and I, we're exactly the wrong crowd to talk about this again because I don't think any of the three of us has this at all. Why do people want to be wounded all the time? What is it that makes people like discover the way that they've been wounded and want to share the way that they've been wounded? Why is that a thing that is so prevalent? I mean, is that just sort of this? These are people who who have been have been wounded and like finally have a platform to speak up, or is it that there is this way in which like that you see this on the right, like the victimology of the right these days is so ludicrous, like this constant sense like oh we're under attack, we are being attacked for this or that reason. Well, Why? What is it that makes well, people want no. to feel that they have been victims? But I think that what what Chait describes is something that the right feels all the time, which is that you cannot question anything uh, an African American president does because immediately you're called a racist. That you can't be unsure 
sure about the role of the of Michael Brown because immediately you are a hateful white police officer that you just the, the feeling that has been constant on the right has been that they are being shut down for any opinion they have and immediately called the most horrible things and a lot of people on the left say oh toughen up nobody's telling you you know you know just engage in the argument don't feel cowed by this yeah i think that's exactly right in terms of capturing the frustration on the right from the left, when people are claiming the mantle of victimhood, I think often it comes with this feeling that you are protecting other people, that by speaking out, you are preventing the harms that hurt you and you are going to make the world a better place. And I bet people on the right feel that too, that if you speak the truth about you know, your theory of how Michael Brown died or whatever else you're feeling boxed out of saying, that people are better off absorbing that complicated truth and that better rules and policies are going to come from a more nuanced understanding. You know what I would like? This is a totally like sad goo goo thing to suggest. But, you know, there is there's like not a lot of modeling of good arguments between people debating really tough things. And by which I mean, there aren't a lot of great examples of it. But there aren't a lot of times when the internet or Twitter or whatever, all of us say, you know, this exchange between these two thoughtful people was incredibly intense. Both people felt very uh, strongly their own views. But they exchanged views in a way that was not immediate motive questioning and name calling. And also like the lawyerly traps people get in these kinds of arguments. Do you think Twitter could ever have that kind of debate? I just feel like this is where the medium fails. No, the medium fails in that point, but it could easily spread the word and say, you know, anybody reading Jonathan Chait should read this other considered rebuttal, not this other thing that makes Jonathan Chait, you know, feel like shit because he's a, you know, a white guy. What about Chait and Tanahasi talking about race? I can't remember. Yeah, how yeah. Long that's that was. that's been that about the that's the first example well, that comes to mind. Tanahasi is interesting because Tanahasi is like he to, that's the, the problem is you end up citing him all the time, but he is like he to me exists in this space where he is like a brilliant writer about all these issues. He does it in this way that is just so thoughtful and engaging in such a kind of like a profound way. And so you never like, even when you disagree with ta you never come away thinking like, this is somebody who is questioning my right to exist. My entitlement to be living on the planet. Yeah. There's only one. I don't think that's the only example, though. I'm trying to think of a good one, like, within feminism and not coming up with one right this second. But I'm sure that our listeners will write in with some, and I could get there if I tried. To me, let's end with this, but the the truest thing in in Chait's piece and is his his conclusion at the end is the reason why this stuff is so bad is that it's just exhausting. Like, to spend all the psychic energy on this is not just for the people attacked, but the people attacked. It's just exhausting. Right. It's just like, oh. Really? Well, this is my... I remember all about the early 90s was just like being tired of it. Right. And that's why the people who engage in the argument sometimes are the ones who have that, who who like thrilled to that, but not the people. So everybody basically leaves the argument because it's just too tiring in a world full of... And this is not the only argument like this that's happening. You know, we're having like raging conversations about serious issues all the time. And it's easy for people to be just like, I just can't. Like my entire – all my willpower is sapped by this argument. So I'm just not going to engage. And the people left to engage are you know, the most strident. And that doesn't lead to like yeah. super elevated debates either. And yeah. welcome to the internet. Yeah, man. Time for a holiday. OK. Let's uh, go on to cocktail chatter. <sighs> when you are – God. God. Woof. Man. All right. <laughs> when you when you John, pick me up. Pick me up if with a great cocktail so chatter. No, no. I got you. No. of a cocktail this weekend. Yeah. You know what's a weird thing? I I don't know if you guys have had this you're, since you're in my cohort. 
I suddenly have lost my taste for alcohol. It's, it's shocking and horrifying to me, but I actually don't like to drink anymore. You mean no, but not, you not mean, even like boo I mean not like boozing, but just like have a drink. I don't want to have a drink. I don't You don't want to drink I, with dinner anymore? You mean no, just No, it's terrible. And what about even breakfast? Even when you go out? Breakfast you, is breakfast still, okay, still, right? still okay. Breakfast is fine. <laughs> even when I go I mean, out. You know, often when I go out, I'll get, you know, I'll get something just cuz I feel like, oh, that's how you, what you do, but I, do I actually want it? Not so you don't really. want to actually taste the drink or you don't want the nice, warm, alive feeling that comes with it afterward? I don't know. I'm not sure what it is. What about as a crutch to get you through your daily labors? <laughs> is it still providing that uh, <laughs> situation? That's what the cocaine what is about for a glass me? of wine that makes you not actually murder your children? Um, <laughs> that is a good point. You invite me to soliloquize, but I won't. But I mean, I'm thinking how many, what, what, I'm counting the hours until I can have my first drink on Friday night. It's, for me, it's the opposite because I don't drink in the quantity that I did as a younger person. It now has this like special vacation feeling to it, you know? Oh, maybe I need to do that. Maybe yeah. I need to. But it also requires, it also means that it is attached to it a lot of like ceremony. I mean, you know, I, yeah. it's, I, I don't just, go I think to, maybe I need to stop having beer. My problem is that it makes me really sleepy the next morning. That's how age is. Affecting me and drinking. Huh. All right. Well, do, what's your chatter, John? A reader wrote in to remind me of this event in Washington, D.C. and suggested it as a possible chatter. And I'm so sorry that I can't remember who it was who suggested it. So whoever you are, remind me and then I will give you the proper credit uh, in the next time. But this will appeal also to David, who may remember what the um, what it was like in Washington, D.C. when the prostitutes were all along different streets. It was K Street. Yeah, it was easy to find that. It was East so great. David remembers it. Oh, yeah. It was no, it was hard to... This used to be true in New York on 6th Avenue, too, when I'd go home from work. It was like... By and, the post. By the post. By the post. There's tons. Yeah. So this is, this is a perfect transition. So in 1989, on July 26th, and the reason the post is important, is at about 1.30 a.m., the police officers in Washington, D.C., the reason it was hard for them to deal with the prostitution trade in Washington was that it took place wisely on uh, the intersection of three different policing districts, and that's why they would set up shop there because no district had responsibility, but no district wanted to have responsibility. So it was kind of everybody was like, no, you deal with it. No, you deal with it. So what would sometimes happen is the police would just pick up all the prostitutes and move them to the next district and put them on the cops there. So finally, they got sick of doing this. And so the cops at one thirty in the morning just marched all of the women across 14th that. Street yeah, 14th. into Virginia. Virginia. <laughs> and yeah. the re- and the, some photographers from the Post were like at the office and, and recorded this. And this, of course, infuriated the um, the Johns, uh, the yeah, Johns, and also the men in, uh, and also the lawmakers in Virginia. But so on July 26, 1989, there was this march all the way; it's quite a long distance across the bridge, supervised by the police. Um, and uh, so that was a, <laughs> a moment in Washington's that. history. It's, it's funny, actually. Atlas Obscura, my my new home, we're doing a, an event on prostitutes in, in D.C. on February 21st, events on sort of the his, D.C. and prostitution and about the, the brothel that used to be on the mall. So the, oh, the mad, wow. it's called, I, I think, Madam on the Mall. And it's about the, the great 19th century brothel of Washington. Oh, wow. I didn't know there was a... Yeah. Uh, well, that's going to be a great story. Um, it's not a story. It's an event. Oh, well, so, I mean, a great story better, to learn about. An event, yeah. because you don't want to read about that. You want to live it. Live it. it. Yeah. Live it. Emily, what is your chatter? John, as always delivering the goods. Yeah, I think you're going to really lampoon me for this. But I have been thinking about the storm that basically wasn't in most of the Northeast, at least not in the big cities, not in New York, and not really where I live. And yet we had this travel ban. And I'm 
kind of super in favor of this travel ban. We had a really, really quiet day in which there was like no movement. For the first time, I'm sure ever, my own city managed to have rules about parking that got the streets plowed relatively quickly. And then things kind of like went back to business the next day. And I was just thinking maybe we should do this more. Have like one day where everyone just stays home and the government cleans up the snow and then everyone goes back to work, goes back to school, as opposed to the usual like dribbling out and dragging on in which there are huge mountains of disgusting, dirty, icy snow in the street for weeks and weeks and everyone is hemmed in and miserable. Hmm. That's a good case. I do remember this is slightly different, but I remember there was a storm once, must have been probably July 26, 1989, <laughs> in fact, um, <laughs> that in, in Washington, a huge, huge thunderstorm and it took out power at my parents house for a week and my mother and i i don't know where my father was uh, i was home from college and my mother and i were there just the two of us for a week and we had no power and I, my mother was so happy just like that the quiet like the shutdown of it it was it made her so satisfied that's a different point but anyway my chatter is about a movie that you guys need to see that all our listeners need to see. Emily, in fact, you in particular, I feel like. And actually, both of you, because you're both skiers. Force Majeure. All right. What movie are we Force, going to see? Force Majeure. Have you guys heard about this movie? No. Tell it's, us. It's a Swedish movie about a Swedish family, a couple and their two young children who were uh, on a ski vacation in France. I'll just give away the initial plot point. There's a There appears to be an avalanche while the couple is uh, having lunch and the avalanche is coming to where they're having lunch. And the husband does something incredibly cowardly. And it's about what happens to the marriage of this super smug, incredibly attractive Swedish family after the after the husband does this this thing. And it's, it's the movie is beautiful. It's shot at this resort, I guess in in France or maybe Switzerland. It's gorgeous. Like the, it's just visually stunning, and it's it's a fascinating portrait of a marriage under pressure. It's great. Isn't that, that's the same Netflix? territory that uh, Little Bee is? C- iTunes right? now. Did any, either of you I read Little B? Didn't read Little Same no. kind of thing. It's about a, a husband who... Anyway. It's great. It's really... On my list. That sounds it's great. It's really great. By the way, the Washington Post story written in uh, 1989 was writ, co-written by a friend of the Gab Fest, Jeffrey Goldberg, at his first job covering That's cops awesome. in... Uh, <laughs> awesome. Uh, not his first... I think maybe not his first job, but anyway, <laughs> one of his early jobs. One uh, more quick thing. So uh, we want to ask you a small favor. At Slate, we're trying to learn more about our podcast listeners... We want you to tell us about the podcasts you enjoy, how often you listen to them, and how you find out about new podcasts. So we created a survey that takes just a couple of minutes to complete. You fill it out. You'll help Slate continue to make great podcasts about the things you love and the things you didn't even know you loved. I want to know what the things I don't even know I love are. So to fill out the survey, go to slate.com slash survey, or you can click on the link that we've provided in the show notes for this episode. That's slate.com slash survey, or click the link in the show notes. Our intern is Tarek Barrett. Our producer is Mike Volo. Joel Meyer is our managing producer. And Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Our show page is slate.com slash GabFest. It has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at Slate GabFest. How is that going, Tarek? I haven't even... Have you, is it going well? It's going well. Thumbs up. Two thumbs up over there. So follow it because Tarek is maintaining and growing that Twitter feed. Our email address is gabfestatslate.com. You can subscribe to the Gabfest on iTunes. Search for Slate Political Gabfest in the iTunes store. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll be with you next week. Mm-hmm.